So it's a privilege for me to be able to open up God's Word with you again this morning after a rich study of First Peter. Uh, Pastor Matt led us in for a long time, a few months. Now we're going to switch gears and we're going to look at an Old Testament prophet by the name of Habakkuk. Like me, you might actually have a hard time spelling or pronouncing the name Habakkuk, and that's okay. Uh, you might think that the way I say it is improper, and that's okay too. You may even have a hard time finding Habakkuk in the Old Testament in the Bible, and that's okay too, because over the next few weeks, actually three weeks, we're going to be studying and reading this book together, and I think what we're going to find is that this ancient book has a timely message for the contemporary church. So I've entitled this series, The Righteous Shall Live by Faith which comes straight from chapter 2, verse 4 of Habakkuk, which is the key verse to this whole book. And it's a key theme in all of Scripture. In fact, this verse is repeated three times for us in the New Testament. We see it famously in Romans 1.17, after that great text, I am not ashamed of the gospel. We see it also in Galatians 3.11, and we see it in Hebrews 10, verse 38, which we read earlier. So the subject of this minor prophet Habakkuk is a major theme for us as Christians to grasp. Now before we read today's text together, let's get a little history and a little context for what was going on in Habakkuk's day. First, who was Habakkuk? Well, we don't know much about this man. We know that he was a prophet. He is one of the minor prophets in the Old Testament. We know that he's a prophet because verse 1 says he is. Which uh, doesn't mean, if he's a minor prophet, it doesn't mean that his message is any less important than the major prophets, but simply that his book is smaller in size. Okay, He has a major theme, and you're going to see that as we, we get into this together. And when was Habakkuk writing? If you're thinking on the timeline of uh, Old Testament, uh, he's writing anywhere between 640 to 605 B.C. The best Old Testament scholars still don't know exactly when he, has, uh, when he was written. But what was happening in the Middle East during Habakkuk's day? There was a regime change happening in world powers at that time. The dominant Assyrians were defeated when their capital city, Nineveh, ring a bell, was overthrown by the Babylonians in 612 B.C. And this mighty world power, the Babylonians, would soon invade Judah and bring the people all the way to Babylon, which would be known as the Babylonian captivity or the exile. The nation that Habakkuk is living in is in spiritual and moral corruption. And it just keeps getting worse. King Josiah has likely just died. He was the good king that recovered the word of God, and when he recovered the word of God and read the word of God, he led the people in radical repentance. He started his reform by destroying the idols that his father Amon and his grandfather Manasseh worshipped. But after Josiah died, his throne is taken over by his three sons, Jehoiahaz, Jehoiakim, and Jehoiachin. They're all doing evil in the sight of the Lord. So Habakkuk is ministering in Judah, likely under King Jehoiakim, while he's looking around and he's seeing the nation self-destructing. Spiritually, morally, it's corrupt. The nation is led by wicked men with power and titles. The men who are supposed to set an example of godly leadership are unrepentant rebellion are in unrepentant rebellion against God. And so God is, God's name is being blasphemed among the heathens, as Romans 2 talks about. If this book were written today, I think that it would be like reading a spiritual journal of a man who's scrolling through his Twitter feed as he reads the corruption in churches, the scandals in churches, and the corruption in the culture at large. He probes deep moral dilemmas like the problem of evil, as philosophers do. He laments like a psalmist does. He prays like a man in God's presence. He clings to God like the righteous, and he sings like a man who knows his God is good. 
He's the kind of man that all of us can learn something from today. He's the kind of man that unloads his problems on God and waits for him to answer. He's a man of faith and a man worth imitating. The first two chapters of this book are his restless complaints with God, and they take the form of a Q&A with God. And the last chapter is his prayer, where his heart is calmed in the presence of his God. His main dilemma at the beginning of this book is this. Why is God silent when gross evil is increasing in his community? Why is God silent? Evil just keeps getting worse and worse around us. Instead of shining like lights in a crooked and perverse generation, the people of God had become a crooked and perverse generation themselves. I think Habakkuk will give us vocabulary for thinking in our day and age. If you've ever wondered why God is silent while the modern church goes from bad to worse, let Habakkuk be your guide today. He has a word for the church. So let's start getting a feel for the time and place of Habakkuk from 2 Chronicles chapter 36. 2 Chronicles 36. We're going to go back in time to 609 BC to a place in the Middle East called Judah. This is likely right after King Josiah dies. Judah goes from having a revival under a godly king to years of spiritual decay and decline under ungodly kings. Listen to the life and times of Habakkuk from 2 Chronicles 36. We're just going to read from verse 5 to 16. Jehoiakim, verse 5, was 25 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord his God. Against him came up Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and bound him in chains to take him to Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar also cried, carried part of the vessels of the house of the Lord to Babylon and put them in his palace in Babylon. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoiakim and the abominations that he did and what was found against him, behold, they are written in the book of the kings of Israel and Judah. And Jehoiachin, his son, reigned in his place. Jehoiachin was 18 years old when he became king and he reigned three months and ten days in Jerusalem. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. In the, spring of the year, in the spring of the year, King Nebuchadnezzar sent and brought him to Babylon with the precious vessels of the house of the Lord and made his brother Zedekiah king over Judah and Jerusalem. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord his God. He did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet, who spoke from the mouth of the Lord. He also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, who had made him swear by God. He stiffened his neck and hardened his heart against turning to the Lord, the God of Israel. All the officers of the priests and the people likewise were exceedingly unfaithful, following all the abominations of the nations, and they polluted the house of the Lord that he had made holy in Jerusalem. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets, until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people, until there was no remedy. In this dark time, in this dark land, God has placed his prophets, Habakkuk, and Jeremiah. Habakkuk means one who embraces or clings. And this prophet shows us what it's like to cling to God when you're living among wicked men in powerful places. Now that the scene is set, let's hear the Q&A f- with God from Habakkuk. And may this little book soothe and settle your heart in the God who governs history, even the events of your life in July 2018. So, Let me finally read to you from Habakkuk 1, and we're going to read to chapter 2, verse 4, which is on page 785 in the Pew Bibles in front of you. And will you please stand with me as we read the Word of God together. Habakkuk 1, verse 1 says this, The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? 
or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise so that the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on, guilty men, whose own might is their God. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors? And remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he. You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. And the Lord answered me, Write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time, it hastens to the end, it will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Let's pray for a moment. Father in heaven, thank you for this word. I pray that our hearts would be stirred to love you, to walk by faith in you today, to trust you with our circumstances, to hold on to your promises. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would refresh us now as we walk by faith. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. This morning we're going to learn from this text that God is trustworthy even when things are getting worse around us. God is trustworthy even when things get worse around us. We're going to see how God in history directs and orchestrates all things together for good for those who love God and are called according to His purpose. In this prophecy, Habakkuk has a unique privilege of looking ahead to see what the sovereign God of history is going to do. But first, he brings his concerns before God. And I think what's leading him to these concerns may be that he wants God's name to be hallowed. He wants God's name to be glorified. And he's looking around him and he's seeing the land of Judah is in spiritual decay. Now let's begin by hearing Habakkuk's first complaint. Verse 1, the oracle or the burden, the weighty message that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? The prophet begins lamenting the spiritual condition in Judah. Though this was written to the people of Judah in the 600s B.C., I think this has implications for us today in the church. Habakkuk lived in a day and age when the leaders of God's people were violent savages. The land was full of villains. And Jeremiah tells us how God thought of his people. Listen to a couple verses from Jeremiah. First from Jeremiah 4.22, he says this, My people, this is God talking, My people are fools. 
They do not know me. They are senseless children. They have no understanding. They are wise in doing evil. They know not how to do good. Wow. That's how God describes his people. They're masters at evil. A couple more verses. Jeremiah 8 says, Prophets and priests alike all practice deceit. They dress the wound of my people as though it were not serious. Peace, peace, they say, when there is no peace. Are they ashamed of their detestable conduct? No. They have no shame at all. They do not even know how to blush. The people of God are so deceitful, and yet they don't even have any shame. The spiritual leaders are doing wickedness, and they're not embarrassed about it. One more verse from Jeremiah 9. Falsehood and not truth has grown strong in the land, for they proceed from evil to evil, and they do not know me, declares the Lord. Let anyone beware of his neighbor, and put no trust in any brother. For every brother is a deceiver, and every neighbor goes about as a slanderer. Everyone deceives his neighbor, and no one speaks the truth. They have taught their tongue to speak lies. They weary themselves committing iniquity. Heaping oppression upon oppression and deceit upon deceit, they refuse to know me, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will refine them and test them. For what else can I do because of my people? Their tongue is a deadly arrow. It speaks deceitfully. With his mouth, each speaks peace to his neighbor. But in his heart, he plans an ambush for him. Nobody trusts anybody in that time because the land is full of masterful manipulators. Can you imagine living in a day like that? They sound more like hard-hearted thugs than godly men of conviction and compassion. They're like a house of lies, maliciously controlling people. And Habakkuk pours out his complaints of the injustices that he sees around him in the community of God's people. He cries out, Verse 2, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear me? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? It's as though the prophet is crying out here, O Lord, it's an emergency. Do something. I'm calling and crying. And you seem apathetic and indifferent to the situation. There's serious violence, God, and you're not bringing about salvation. You are the God of salvation. Why aren't you doing anything about this? I think Habakkuk is showing us, right to begin with, what faith looks like in the midst of evil times. We see how conversant he is with God, how familiar he is with his God, how open and honest he is with his God. I also think God loves to answer these crisis kind of prayers. The prophet's need has sparked restless dialogue with God. He's wrestling with God right now. He's groaning. And God hears the needy. God hears His people when they groan. As Psalm 12, verse 5 says, Because the needy groan, I will now arise. It's like He's going to move now. God hears your complaint, He's going to move. You might not yet, but you might not get immediate results when you're calling out to God. But rest assured, God hears our prayers. He hears our groans and He hears our griefs. As Christians, He will attend to our cries. My Christian friend, is there something right now in your life that's caused you grief? Are you groaning about something you feel like God doesn't hear? You're crying and you feel like your prayers are going nowhere. Are you wrestling with God about something complex and complicated? Is there something bothering you and you don't know how long you can endure it? Do you feel fed up? Do you feel like He's not listening to you when you call? Maybe your heart even physically hurts you because you're in such anguish and grief. Why not call out to God like Habakkuk did? He seems to be in anguish and a lot of grief. Just like him, why not call out, Oh Lord, how long? Just repeat these words back to God in faith. In prayer, oh Lord, how long? Fill in the blank. How long will my family continue to go through this? How long will my work situation continue like this? How long, oh Lord, how long? Why not pray out to God if it's an emergency and you feel you need Him to act? 
My prayer is that the Holy Spirit would meet you in your current wrestling and settle your heart into His embrace and care today. I'm sure you've come burdened. I'm sure you can recall a few things that you cannot stand any longer. Call out to God. He hears your prayer when you call how long. Maybe it's an emergency like it was for Habakkuk. If so, when you're done groaning to God today, why not talk to someone next to you and get them to pray for you? And if you need support, the church is here to serve others just like you. So don't let your struggle go on in silence. Don't do it alone. Our God hears when His needy people cry, yet sometimes His prayer is not immediate. Habakkuk's grieving continues in verse 3. Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are, going, are before me. Strife and contention arise. Habakkuk seems to be getting a little upset now. The all-knowing God sees evil around him and he isn't acting immediately. How do we reconcile this? So the prophet asks him, why do you look idly at wrong? Is God disinterested in these obvious evils as they persist among His people? God, are, you're the just God. How are you tolerating this evil? How can you stand it? I've heard many Christians say similar things as they look around at the popular preachers and the scandals in churches. And as they see these things, they say something like, I, I don't know how long the Lord can stand this. His name is being blasphemed. People in the community who don't know Christians are calling out Christians and saying, see, look at them. They're just like us. And though we might not see immediate justice, God is not idle to these things. When the people of Judah were destroying one another and conflict, violence, and strife was increasing in the land, God cared. God cared then, and He cares now. When His name is being dishonored, By His people, it doesn't escape His notice. He is not apathetic to wrongdoing or to wrongdoers. Now to the peak of Habakkuk's grief. Verse 4. So the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. As we can tell, these are dark days. Justice never goes forth. The law of God is rendered ineffective in the land because of the hypocrisy of the leaders. The people who are supposed to uphold and live by it are perverting and violating it. And justice is being twisted. Abusive men are being protective uh, being protected and they're living above the law while the righteous are being cornered. And ambushed. Sounds just like the religious leaders in Jesus' day, doesn't it? Justice never goes forth perverted, he says. Now, justice is a key concept in the Old Testament. It means something like honorable relations that reflect God's integrity. They're honest, moral, ethical living. But these men, honest moral, ethical living was foreign in that day. These men were nothing like that. And we see that in the Bible, God calls His people to do justice. That famous verse in Micah 6, He has told you, O man, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? But in that day, they were only corrupting justice. And why is justice so important to God? And why is it so important for leaders to do? Well, because leadership can either be life-giving or destructive, can't it? Leadership can be life-giving or destructive. Because with leadership comes power. When you're a position of power, you have opportunity to bless people or to destroy people. And history shows us that men can do evil things with power. Power has potential to be used either to do justice, empowering image bearers to flourish, or power can pervert justice 
and break image bearers back. We just need to look at chattel slavery to see how that has happened in history. As Mark Dever says, power apart from God's purposes is always demonic. Power apart from God's purposes is always demonic. To contrast leadership in Habakkuk's day, I just want to look at 2 Samuel 23 for a second, which shows us how leadership that prioritizes doing justice brings life and vitality to those under it. This we're going to look at King David at the end of his life. From 2 Samuel chapter 23, verses 1 to 4. Now these are the last words of David. The oracle, the burden of David, the son of Jesse. The oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob. The sweet psalmist of Israel. The spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me. Listen here. When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light. Like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning. Like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. That's quite great imagery, doesn't it? doesn't give you an idea. When someone is God-fearing in leadership and does justly, he causes people to flourish. Just like the dawn of the morning light. You wake up in the morning, you have your coffee, and you see the sun, and you just think, ah, I'm ready for the day. That's the taste of the morning. Well, under godly leadership, you can flourish and enjoy. Maybe you've been under just leaders and bosses and managers. These are the kind of people that have left a lasting impression on your life, likely. They enable you to flourish. And if that's happened to you, and if it's happening to you right now, you ought to pray for those people and thank God for, for that. But my guess is that some of you have been under shady, unjust bosses. They oppress and destroy. Maybe you've had evil bosses, managers, or even spiritually abusive church leaders. Kids, maybe you've been bullied by someone. Maybe you've been bullied by someone at school and you're a little bit afraid to go back to school in September. Get acquainted with this beautiful little book here, Habakkuk. And let this word shepherd your heart and heal your wounds. Because Habakkuk brings complaints to God. And once we cry out to God, tell someone you trust. Talk to someone about what you're going through. Don't suffer in silence. In Habakkuk's day, justice was not being exercised by leaders who God described as men who did evil in the sight of the Lord. It is interesting, God gives a descriptor of the people, the kings back in the day, and he basically says whether they did right in the eyes of the Lord or evil in the sight of the Lord. That's his descriptor. These men did evil in the sight of the Lord. Maybe they tricked people. Maybe people thought they were honorable honorable men. But according to God, who knows the heart, they did evil in his sight. But not only that, the leaders were so unjust that they would gang up around the righteous. Look at verse 4. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Now in that day, false prophets are abounding. And true prophets like Jeremiah are being persecuted. If you want to look at Jeremiah's persecution, you can look at that this afternoon at Jeremiah chapter 20. And you see that a man like Jeremiah, who simply goes out to share the word of God, gets persecuted by false prophets. These leaders were calculating, and they were experts at doing evil, while they cloaked it as righteousness. This is a particular wickedness. They'd outnumber and they'd circle around the upright people like a pack of wolves and make their heinous attack appear noble, leaving the righteous in the dust. Sound like the real world? Sound like the corporate world? Sound like the streets? Aren't you glad Scripture is true to life? Listen to Martin Luther as he's commenting on this verse. All the bigwigs talk about their mischief. Habakkuk states here that the wicked defraud the righteous. He expresses the same thought 
with the word circumvent, to trip him up and to surround him with trickery, so that the righteous suffer injustice. Such men are far baser rogues than public thieves and criminals, for the latter violate the law openly, so that anyone can understand and perceive this, whereas those people presume to pose as godly, they want to see injustice regarded as justice. What? They want to see their perverse injustices regarded as right and just. These were evil men premeditating their traps. In a world, the people of God had become wicked and worldly. They are skilled at optics and make their evil plans appear honest and moral. This is a dark day. Christian, you probably know people who say that they don't accept Christianity because there's too many hypocrites in the church. We've probably all heard that. And sadly, that's true. There are people who say they're Christians who speak one thing and live another. Hypocrisy is two-faced and half-hearted at best. And it's a greasy stain on the church community. And it's only removed through thorough repentance. Even Jesus taught that there would be tares sown among wheat. In the church community that assembles together, there will always be genuine and counterfeit Christians. But things get much worse when you talk about hypocrisy in Christian leaders. Surely this is a stain that destroys the reputation of Christ and perverts the gospel of justice and grace. When men who are called to live with integrity are involved in underhanded, unethical, and unlawful things, they are perverting justice. And while we have plenty examples of hypocrisy around us in churches and in Christian history, the Bible says this, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? The answer, verse 10, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. None of us will escape the scrutiny of God's judgment. And he knows all our wicked thoughts and devious ways. May his word search us today and expose us of our sin and the ways that we have perverted justice. Maybe behind closed doors. Maybe not publicly. But in what ways have we twisted truths and perverted justice? May God search us. May the gospel of grace and the good shepherd lead us out of denial and into freedom and repentance in the ways that we have drifted and lived as hypocrites. Let's look again to Jesus by faith and not live in gospel contradiction and gospel hypocrisy. Repentance and forgiveness are gifts, but if our hearts are hard to God and we refuse to repent, chastening and discipline will come. And that's what happens to Judah in a radical way. Here's God's surprising answer, verse 5. Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. While Habakkuk might have been expecting God to answer with another godly king like Josiah and bring revival, shockingly, God is not going to do that. He's not going to raise up a righteous king just yet. He will one day send a king from the tribe of Judah who rules justly. But in this moment of history, rather than bring revival and salvation to the nation, God is actually going to bring a more corrupt nation into town to judge Judah. That's shocking. Verse 6, For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth. God is going to use the Chaldeans, also known as the Babylonians, as a battering ram for his rebellious, unrepentant people. He's going to raise up a frightening people to rebuke Judah. They're going to invade and steal, verse 6, to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. 
They are a law unto themselves. They ignore laws, just like the people of Judah were doing with God's law. What are the Babylonians like? They're vicious and proud men, coming to destroy. Listen to verses 8-9. through nine. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. They come for violence. They're brutal, and they're taking hostages. Verse 10, At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on, guilty men whose own might is their God. Here you see their pride. Back in the day, they would pile up earth against the fortress or the city wall to gain access to it. These men would laugh and scoff at the rulers and the kings back in that day as they encircled and sieged their cities and then moved on to the next one. They would shoot first and ask questions later. These are bad men, and they're coming to Judah to judge them. And these are the people that are invading the people of God and going to take Judah into exile for 70 years. Not only is God's answer not what Habakkuk expected, it also brings a more perplexing philosophical dilemma. This nation is actually more violent than Judah. This nation is worse than Judah. They're idolaters. How can God, being holy, bring judgment on Judah, which is comparatively less evil than Babylon? How can God still be silent when a really, really evil nation is going to destroy a less evil nation? Think of it like this. In our day, there are corrupt church leaders. And God sees the corrupt church leaders and He sends the drug cartel or the mafia to go and destroy the church and kill the leaders. What would you say of that? Lord, they're the people of God. Church leaders. Shocking, isn't it? The prophet's shocked as well. The prophet's first question was, why is the just God silent while evil evil persists in his people, among his people? Now, God's answer to that question causes more complexity, and he says, how can God, who is holy, punish Judah with an even more wicked nation? This is the prophet's second complaint. Verse 12, are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die, O Lord. You have ordained them as a judgment. And you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You see his argument? He starts rehearsing God's character back to God, which is a great place for our prayers to begin. He says, are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? He's praying what he knows to be true about God, which kind of keeps him on the tracks before going into some sort of blasphemous uh, comment about God. He's praying what he knows to be true about God. God, you are from everlasting. You are the eternal God. My Holy One, you are my God. He knows God intimately, intimately, and he knows that God is holy. He knows God's not responsible for sin. Yet he also knows that God won't utterly destroy his people. He says, we shall not die. But he realizes that Babylon is a tool of chastisement for Judah. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment. And you, O rock, have established them for reproof. He believes that God is who he says he is. But he's bothered by what appears like inconsistencies between God's character and how he's governing things in his world. In verse 13, we see the heart of his conundrum. He says, verse 13, You are of purer eyes than to see evil 
and cannot look at wrong. He says, you're too morally pure, God, to look at evil with approval. You don't bless wickedness. You don't look approvingly at evil. Why do you look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? How can you remain silent, God, when evil men are eating up other men for breakfast? How can you do this? Now, Habakkuk never accuses God of injustice. That would be blasphemy. So I think praying the attributes of God keeps him from going off the rails. But he's trying to sort out God's character here and put it as a grid to the historical events that are going to take place. How is it that the righteous, sorry, that the wicked are winning over the less wicked? How is this just? At least that's how he's wrestling with it right now. That's how he sees it. He's wrestling with the problem of evil, which a lot of university students and professors have determined to resolve. A massive problem, philosophically. You may be here today and you're skeptical about Christianity, and you're skeptical skeptical about the God of the Bible. In fact, I had an awesome opportunity with a man on the bus on Tuesday, and he told me that the God of the Old Testament must be spiteful. He cannot be a good God. Maybe you would agree with him. And you come to the problem of evil and you say, you look at verses like this too and you say, see, I told you so. Why would I believe in that God? Well, I can't solve the problem of evil. And to be honest, I don't know if the best scholars that have worked hard at this would actually satisfy your quandary. This is a very complex dilemma. But Habakkuk struggled with it as well. And many other people of antiquity. What you're going to see is that though Habakkuk has great and big problems which cause him grief, his God was greater than his problems. And embracing this God calmed his soul though all his problems weren't solved. So don't let your academic queries perplexities keep you from the true God. He satisfies deeper than understanding the greatest mysteries ever will. And honestly, the message about Jesus is the key to understanding our greatest problem of evil. Our personal guilt and sin before a holy God. The Bible gives us a message which solves our problem of evil, which is inside our hearts, before we look out and see the evil outside our doors. What you find in the Bible is a God who is just, who will not clear the guilty. He carries out justice on the guilty if they do not repent and believe in Jesus. But on the cross where Jesus died, He endured the justice of God for sinners. And in His resurrection, He shows us that justice has been served His death was enough. Friend, if you're here today and you're not yet a Christian, would you consider reading the Gospel of Mark this week? Just Google the Gospel of Mark and just start reading it. For the sake of your soul, consider what Jesus has to say. Consider what God has to say about justice and how Jesus took the wrath of God for sinners. According to the Bible, Jesus is the only, uh, only escape, the only hope for us to escape from the wrath of God, the wrath of this just God. Today, if you turn from your sin and trust in Jesus, you will escape judgment and meet the good God. Look to Him to solve the problem of your evil. Habakkuk's questions move into an illustration of the evils that the Babylonians are committing. Verse 14, you make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. This is both a picture of the Babylonians' brutality and their practice. They didn't care about people. 
People were to them like fish which you catch, kill, and eat. And they were about to take Judah captive as with a hook. This is interesting because this is a picture of what actually happened. History shows us that the Babylonians actually practiced this. There's monuments that depict the Chaldeans, same word for Babylonian, or same uh, meaning as Babylonians, as having a hook driven through the lower lips of their captives, and they were stringing them single file like fish on a line. These were brutal men. And this is how they treated other image bearers. They're brutal, they're ruthless, but not only that, they're also idol worshippers. Verse 16. Therefore he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. They would sacrifice offerings to their nets that they killed people with. They sacrificed to lifeless objects. They'd It'd be like killing someone with a gun today, and after you've killed that person, worshiping and kissing and then praying to that gun. They're praying to inanimate objects. But verse 17 shows us the last word of his complaint, and it appears Habakkuk is close to despairing now. He says, verse 17, Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? It's close to fatalism. He's close to that point where he says, ah, it's just going to continue. Will the vicious pattern of evil continue forever, God? Will there be an end to this, Lord? When will the bullies taste justice for what they've done? Or will they just keep succeeding in their viciousness? And with that, Habakkuk is done emptying out his heart in complaint. He's ready now to wait for God's answer. And he says he's going to watch and wait like a soldier stationed on a tower, standing and waiting for the word from his master. Verse 1 of chapter 2, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. God's answer is going to come in two parts. The first part we're going to look at today and... The next part we'll look at next week. The first part is from verses 2 to 4, and it concerns how we are to live in the face of these puzzling problems. The second part is verses 5 through 20, which next week we're going to look at as God pronounces his judgments on the evil Babylonians. Now, to the first part of God's second answer, verses 2 through 4. And the Lord answered me, Write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. Habakkuk was told to write the vision God was going to give him on tablets. That was the media of the day. Etching something on tablets was how you'd get the word out of something. Verse 2, so that he may run who reads it. This either means that so that those who run by it can read it, or it means that the one who reads it may run and spread the message of it. Either way, what is clear is that God wanted the message that he was giving Habakkuk to be understood. He made the vision plain and clear. Because God means for his word to be understood. And so he wanted it clear. Though this vision is about future events, the Lord assures Habakkuk, even if it seems slow, wait on the Lord. He will fulfill his word. He's addressing his heart posture. He's speaking to Habakkuk, addressing his heart posture before he reveals his plan to him. The plan that he has might ease some of Habakkuk's tensions and anxieties. Maybe. But God is addressing his heart first. His promises will come true at their appointed time. Though it's not immediate, We're still crying out, how long, O Lord? Though it doesn't come maybe immediately, that doesn't negate the truthfulness of God's promises. He will fulfill His Word. This vision is no lie. It's coming. God says, wait for it. Trust me. Verse 3. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. 
If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Now God sums up humanity beautifully in verse 4. He contrasts the proud with the righteous. The proud live trusting in themselves. The righteous live trusting in God. I think the first part of the verse applies directly to the Babylonians and then it extends to all those who live in pride. And I think the second half applies directly to Habakkuk, but then it extends to all who live by faith. So let's read that. Verse 4, Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Habakkuk was being called to live by faith in the face of baffling evils. And God calls us to do the same today. God wants us to know that the righteous live by faith even in the midst of evil times. God is pleased when we trust Him through the storms of life. May our hearts be strengthened today because this God is trustworthy even when things are getting worse around us. One of the New Testament texts that repeats this verse is Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to close with this. Listen to Hebrews 10, verses 37 to 39. Yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Friends, the God who told Habakkuk that he will fulfill his prophecy of judgment on the Babylonians tells us that his son, Jesus Christ, who is called faithful and true, is returning at the end of history. And with justice he judges and wages war. And he will put an end to the tyranny of evil. He will not only destroy Babylon and the evil kingdoms like it in this world, he will destroy the great enemy of God, the great enemy of our souls, Satan himself. God will fulfill his word. You can bank on it. Don't shrink back. The righteous shall live by faith. Jesus is coming and will not delay. And he will triumph. Injustice will not have the last word. Evildoers will be judged when the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ. And He shall reign forever and ever. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your love. We thank You that You are a just God that you do what is right and honorable. And I pray that today our hearts would be encouraged and strengthened in the promises of your word. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.